You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So let us pray. Gracious Father, um, coming to your parable of... uh, of the prodigal son, or the two lost sons, or the running father, or whatever else we might call it. Um, one of your great uh, words to those of us who find ourselves either or both in the position of, of the wayward son or the, uh, uh, the one who thinks he's respectable. Um, speak to us now, Lord, and let your grace so go before us that we uh, find ourselves lost in your embrace. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so, thank you. Um, we've been moving through this series, um, getting to the heart, uh, uh, different questions, um, trying to pull the string tight, so to speak, and, and get us to put ourselves in the stories or in the uh, hey Stephen, um, in the stories or in the words. You know, going back to the first week, great great line that Jesus says to to his disciples and therefore to each of us, let this word uh, uh, be poured into your ears. Um, I love that when I read it again. I was like, oh, that's a good place to start. And so that's kind of how the series kind of began, that let the word of God be poured into our ears and then make its way to our heart so it would get to the heart. That's kind of the the uh, the way my brain works, and that's how this this little short six week series started. As we're getting to the heart, as the word is poured into our ears, you know, just the questions then begin to come. Um, uh, what's in your heart? What's on your mind? Um, how deep does the wound go? How how far down is the pain? How how uh, how rooted is sometimes your joy? Um, the thing that makes you okay, the thing that makes you look up and say, like, you know, in spite of everything else, I'm really, I'm okay. You know, at the end of the day, like Paul would say, uh, therefore I stand. And I'm, I'm standing. I'm still standing. <laughs> uh, and sometimes that's, that's there too. And we can look back and say, like, I don't know why I'm still, I'm still alive. I'm still standing. I'm still breathing. Get to the heart. You know, what, what makes it tick? Um, as the word is poured into our ears. And, and here we're slowing down a little bit, taking Luke 15. We're sort of in the middle chapters of Luke, by no means a, a close exegesis, a close verse by verse or even syllable, syllable by syllable sometimes movement through this part of Luke. Uh, but in the middle chapters of Luke where he tells a lot of parables and he speaks about his death and there's the transfiguration, etc. and so forth. And we're kind of slowing down, letting the speed bump, which is Luke 15, really do its work on us and slow down. And we looked last week at the uh, the parable of of the uh, the lost sheep and the coin. Looked at some other things too. And this week will be the prodigal son, as it's most often called, but it's also some other things. Um, but the setup each week, uh, as we're thinking about God and what He does, that what He does seems simple enough: saves, delivers, rejoices, redeems. Uh, but how he does that is not nearly as simple or as obvious as it might seem. He doesn't do any of this in a straight line. He doesn't do any of this 
in the most obvious way. Um, who does he save but sinners and losers? Who does he raise? Only the dead. Who does he deliver? Only those who are lost and inept and impotent. Only those that have no power to get out of their lostness. Um, if you've ever been truly lost, I mean, the definition has to stick. I can't do anything about it. If you know the way back, you're not really lost. If you have no idea and you can't do anything about your situation, that's lost. Uh, who does he redeem? Only those bondaged or in bondage or imprisoned. Who does he justify? The wicked, the ungodly, the weak, or his enemies. Uh, and over whom does he rejoice? Here's the funny, here's the punchline. He rejoices over those who repent, over one repentant sinner. We heard twice last week with the coin and the sheep. Um, that's where there's rejoicing in heaven. Um, oddly enough, when God uh, sort of turns the, the medieval axiom on its, on its head, here's a funny phrase, uh, do what is in you, what's the one thing that we actually can say that we own? What's the one thing that each of us have that we did not, in fact, receive? What's the one thing that we possess that was not gifted to us? Our sin. That's why you know we, we, we want to sort of get clear again and again and again on what is often called original sin. Uh, what does that mean? It means it was there at the very beginning of each of us, at the origin of our life, as David would say in one of the Psalms. I was evil even in my mother's womb. Um, that's a jarring word, of course. But it's important to uphold because then, as we say, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee, and all the other parts. What, have you, what do you have that you do not receive? There is one answer. There is one answer. I did not receive as a gift my sinfulness. That was a part of me from the very beginning. Before I was, even my eyes open, that was already there. So, um, when we do what is in us, um, that's the one thing that we bring to the table, is our, our need, our deadness, our lostness, our imprisonedness, our, our, uh, our impotence, our ineptness, um, all the things that God needs to have in order to do what he wants to do so he can rejoice. There's the punchline. You know, he's like, this is a great idea. Um, uh, I rejoice over people who repent. Luckily, in order to repent, you have to be lost and dead and powerlessness and powerless and, uh, and, and, and one in need. It's a tight little circle. We'll hopefully kind of unwrap that a little bit. Doesn't do that, and like I spent a lot of time on it this week, um, in the way that we normally think of it, the, the frontal power, the way that God, the way that things come to us when we recognize it, uh, the right handed work, um, the works of a right hand, works that come to us in a way that we would expect, that makes sense, that, um, uh, that every person uh, who's ever lived would recognize, yep, that's, that's going to have this kind of effect. Um, uh, two plus two equals four. That's right-handed work. I know that to be true. A steamroller comes at me, even if it's coming at me two miles an hour, like in a fish called Wanda. If I don't get out of the way, I know what's going to happen. This is not going to be a surprise. Everybody is going to recognize the power that's in the uh, in the result. The left-handed work, not at all, <laughs> not at all like this. 
for every purpose that you could possibly imagine. What looks like death or weakness or darkness, uh, the left hand of God turns to life and power and light. Um, as Paul would say, especially in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians, uh, the foolishness of God appears uh, uh, exceeds the wisdom of men. What seems wise to men, the right hand of God, the right hand of works, is foolish to God, and he exudes, he uses his own foolishness to shame the quote wise. And so the best example of that is what? It's the cross of Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection for us. What seemed like certain and sure death is in fact our certain and our sure life. So that's the brief encapsulation and let's repeat every week just because we need this word poured into our ears again and again and again so it'll be in fact a word of hope so that when we wonder lord i don't know where you are but i trust that in this moment this moment when all seems lost this moment when everything seems dark this moment when it seems that death is certain that we can then say i stand I stand on your word and the certain and sure truth that something yet is happening that I am not aware of. Your left hand is living and active and powerful, and it is doing its work for me. And that's that, friends, is, is a word worth dying for. The left hand of God, yet at work when it seems certainly and surely absent. So, preface ended. Questions or comments or thoughts? I'm just going to keep... Repeating that, you know, at the at the risk of being overly repetitious, I'm not sure, especially just six weeks, you know, if I had to say that six weeks in a row, I'm not sure I could say that enough. Um, thoughts? What came to my mind, Gil, was the, uh, when you mentioned how we're born without being given or having to receive sin. Mm-hmm. It's just it's there. part of us. It uh, couldn't help but uh, analyzing my mind how uh, the book of Romans where St. Paul says do what we don't want to do Come in. because naturally yep. it's uh, obvious that we want to do the natural things that we want to do are of a sinful nature that's right uh, yep. you give us much hope theologically in, in doing the things that we don't want to do uh, or doing our best to abide yep. by that yep can I give you much hope? I, mean, I hope the Lord can. <laughs> I don't mean to be funny, Tim. All right with you, sir. Yep, it's Paul. You're right there. And I'm going to do Romans. Decided I'm going to do that in the spring. So we're going to walk through all that and lead up to the great crescendo, Romans 7, where all that's come before in Romans 1 through 6 and a half, Romans 7 and a half, where Paul comes to that point. Who am I? You know, you know what I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I keep doing that thing. Wretch that I am. Um, who will deliver me? Who does God deliver? Those that are impotent, lost, powerless, who can't do a thing to help themselves. As Cramner said in his great colleague, Lord, it's true. We have no power within ourselves to help ourselves. I mean, that word has to be first on our lips. And then, what's the word of hope? You know, it's not my word. It's like, oh, yeah, God's in the business of saving the lost, of raising the dead of delivering impotent sacks of bones, wretched man that I am, this body of death. Um, 
he picks it up and moves it and works with it and goes uh, and, and does something to his glory. And it's not of your own, lest no man may boast. And that's just worth going back to again and again and again. Our powerlessness to do anything, but his power and pleasure to do everything. And that's, uh, that's glorious. That's really great. Great book title out there um, by Chad Bird. Your God is too glo- your God is um, too glorious. Where it's it's uh, this this God who's so out there, who's so magnificent and so incredible and so otherworldly as to have no value or use in this world, in the muck, in the mire, in the scum, in the dirt, in the the, the sack of bones that we all are. That. Your God is too glorious, meaning he glories in ignominy. He glories in death. He glories in being dirty. He glories in coming alongside his enemies and sort of saying, you, you're mine, you're one. So anyway, not moving and preaching, but it's fun. Any other thoughts? We got, you know, going to move in. Yeah, Jim. I have a question. Do you think there's a paradoxical relationship between salvation on the one hand in which we have nothing to do a paradoxical relationship yeah yeah it's a good question um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a strong word out there and it's gonna be you know with lack of nuance and so maybe I'll, I'll nuance it later I think it's typically overplayed our role in sanctification as well um, Maybe we don't have as much role to play in our own sanctification as we think. The word sanctify, and, 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 and I talk about this with some of my friends and who are much smarter than I am, and, uh, and I'm wrong. I'm wrong in a lot of places. I'm wrong everywhere, somewhere, all the time. <laughs> but the word sanctify means set apart, not to be imbued with a particular power that somehow makes it qualitatively better than something else. So that's a big word, qualitatively. It just means the quality hasn't necessarily changed. It just means set apart for another use now. So our sanctification, as we remain, as Paul would say, a cracked pot. I'm still a cracked pot. He hasn't taken me from a cracked pot and made it this sort of beautiful you know, porcelain vase or something else like that or this golden vessel. And now it's worthy to carry the gospel um, He says, nope, the unbelievable pearl of great price is still being carried around in a cracked pot. Um, Holy, sanctified, set apart as an ignoble vessel for a noble use. Our sanctification remains dependent upon the very word of God, just as our justification or our salvation or our glorification or our mortification, all the ifications. we, We don't do any of it. So that's a short answer. Um, paradoxical in the sense of the left hand of God being the, the hand at work, even in my sanctification, um, where I work. I, I, uh, I, I feed the poor. I, I clothe the naked. I, I, uh, I, give, I, I come alongside those who need, not so that people would say, look at me, look at Ron, look at Josh, look at Hughes, um, but look at his father who aren't in heaven. Um, uh, but we'll talk about that later. So it's a good question. Maybe talk about it some today. Um, 
Let's do this. Um, Luke 15, as uh, with the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin last week, the first parts of Luke. There's Bibles over there if you want one or pull it up on your phone. Um, it's, a, it's a chapter about repentance. And so what does that mean? Um, just put that strong word out there that we think we do far more than we actually do. The same way that repentance, where the Lord repeats often, repent and believe. And we think, okay, well, there it is. That's, what's, that's, that's, that's my responsibility. I'm supposed to say, uncle. Or something. Um, I'm supposed to say, you know, help. I'm supposed to say need. I'm supposed to say stop. I'm repent, um, and then muster up belief, whatever that looks like. Um, I'm one to praise passivity wherever we can, uh, and praising the passivity in the process of repentance. Uh, in the parable of the sheep, uh, what role does the sheep play in its repentance? In the parable of the lost coin, even more striking. What power does the coin have to repent? <laughs> a coin doesn't have a whole lot of agency. A coin doesn't have a whole lot of power. Um, uh, the sheep, all it does, there's one reason we're called sheep. What does a sheep do? You know, this is all when I've read. Although I, 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 I've played with sheep before. They're stupid. They're dirty. They're ugly. They got things. And they're just, they're filthy, filthy, dumb animals. All they do is put their head down and they walk to the next tuft of grass. This is true. Um, any of y'all been to Bolivia? I know several have here. Um, uh, they just put their head down and they eat and they eat and they eat. And they'll go off a cliff because they just have their head down and they're walking and they don't have any idea what they're doing or where they're going. When Paul says, you know, your God is your stomach, that is absolutely true for a sheep. The next thing that they're doing is trying to put more food into their stomachs, which don't even work well. <laughs> you know, that's the problem with the sheep. Um, uh, and so the sheep goes out there. It doesn't look up and say, like, oop, trouble. I'm in trouble. You know, here comes a wolf or I'm lost. I'm about to fall off a cliff. It doesn't even do that. The shepherd does what? He leaves the 99, puts all of them at risk, leaves them in the open country. He didn't give that qualification. Doesn't leave them in the sheep pen. Doesn't leave them with somebody else. Just leaves them to wander so he can go get the one. And then what does he do? He doesn't sort of say, come on, here's a piece of food. Here's a piece of food. Doesn't even do that. The sheep doesn't even sort of say, oh, I'll reach up and I'll grab the life jacket. I'll reach up and I'll follow the shepherd. The shepherd goes over, grabs him, puts the sheep on his shoulders, and carries him back. I tell you, there is more joy in heaven on one sinner who repents. Um, and there are over 99 who who never strayed. Um, that's going to be the older brother. Or like a coin, you know, what woman who, when uh, losing a coin, doesn't turn the house over and upon finding it, you know, have a party and tell everybody, hey, come on over, I found my lost coin. Um, coin, you know, lost at the bottom of the ocean or underneath your seat cushion or whatever else, it can't do anything to get found. It doesn't even have awareness, of course, and that's part of the parable. It's just, it is, it's, it's beyond dumb. It's inanimate. It has nothing. Uh, and the, to, the coin repents. Can a coin repent? Well, how about the coin is repented? There's the word I like to have, where the command to repent, our need to repent, and we have to do it. Thanks be to God, in praise of passivity, be repented and be faithed, which is what the word believe means. Um, and there's we're going to see. That's how we're going to see this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, uh, where the, the, uh, the word which is being poured into our ears of repent and believe 
thanks be to God, as, as, as wicked, lost, dumb sheep with black hearts, inanimate coins who can't do anything to help themselves in order to be found. Uh, the shepherd, the woman, the Lord, the Father who runs out and meets us. Um, all the different ways that Jesus comes at it. In the same word, six different ways. He comes to you. He repents you. He faiths you so that you then have repentance and belief. That's kind of the thread we're following today. So, famous, famous, famous parable um, that is just begged for a for art, um, nice little cartoon. This is when uh, Scott Keith came last fall, um, two year ago, um, from California with Rod Rosenblatt and the, the the book Being Dad. Some of us have read that. It's been a great book. Very sort of uh, like we've seen some art before. Some of y'all have been near me or in the book God's Two Words, which is in our store, the the Law Gospel Colloquium that we did. Sort of on the left, right. This was a famous way of. A sort of drawing out, and I bet this was a Lutheran who uh, who wrote this. On the left, uh, this is, of course, the parable of the, the lost son, the younger son, who went and squandered the father's wealth. And you can see the Tower of Babel over there and everything dying. And interestingly, amidst all the bones, there's something like a crucifix with Henry on top, you know, Jesus Christ, uh, the King of the Jews. Um, and then coming, after coming to himself, walking from the death into the light and seeing the father run out. Um, just a nice little cartoon. James Tissot, one of the you know uh, uh, famous, just getting some of the emotion into the room of the younger son coming and uh, and having the father fall on him. Uh, or then Rembrandt. Um, you're going to see several pieces leading up to the famous parable or the uh, the uh, uh, the return of the prodigal son. He, uh, this is a, a drawing, a pen and ink that he did. He, were, he worked on this for, for 15, 20 years, evidently. Just kept working through this theme um, one way and then another way. This is a self-portrait where he's uh, in the middle of his Vegas life where he goes away and he, he uh, we'll read it in just a minute, um, where he's squandering his father's wealth. Uh, and so Rembrandt painted him in the picture as the younger son squandering the wealth with, uh, with wine, women, and song. And who's the woman in his lap? It's his wife, which I thought was really great. Um, so, you know, he puts both of them in there to say, like, you know, we don't have anything except our sin. Nothing were we given except our inclination to, uh, to, uh, to go away. And then another great etching um, or drawing uh, uh, where the father um, embraces the son. Let's hold that one up there as we read it. Um, the famous, famous painting is, is, is a little bit more reading on it again this week. As somebody once said, um, you would be excused if when you go to St. Petersburg. Has anybody seen this painting in St. Petersburg? Have you? I've, I've wanted, I, I would like to go to St. Petersburg just to see this, this painting. Um, uh, you would be excused upon seeing it uh, to, uh, to utter this is the greatest painting that was ever made. Um, that's what one art critic had to say. Uh, let's read the parable, and then we're going to go through and kind of work it in a few angles. Um, Luke 15, verse 11. I hope these are familiar words to most of us. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Uh, 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, it's going to be an important verse, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. And I will, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, the servant said to the older brother, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry, and he refused to go in. And his father came out, the second time the father goes out, and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came and who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead, this, for this brother, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So, even beginning to, uh, to dive in on this, it's interesting, remember this, um, heard this a couple of years ago. This is one of the, across the spectrum of types of churches that might be out there, it's one of the most commonly preached parables, as you might expect. Um, but interestingly, how the emphasis, I think at Pew Research Institute or somebody did this, this study, uh, churches that would be more fundamentalistic in its sort of orientation, a little bit more sort of, you know, uh, in their caricature, be emphasis, would want to emphasize um, uh, good Christian behavior, don't drink, don't smoke, don't fool around with girls who do, that kind of thing. They really emphasize the, uh, the, the, the younger brother and say, don't be the younger brother. Um, but then other churches, kind of on the flip side, uh, who preach it just as often as, as, as the fundamentalistic um, sort of behavior-oriented churches, sort of the mainline Protestant churches, uh, will want to really emphasize the older brother and his judgy attitude. Don't be like the older brother and always sort of calling out because God likes, you know, sort of, you know, waywardness and, you know, just everybody let live and let live, and, you know, and just kind of, kind of be nice to all. Not to say that the middle way is always the right way, but I hope we can find another way between those two poles where we're, we're sort of setting one brother up as the example at the expense of the other. Both sons are lost. Both sons are dead. Um, uh, one comes to know it, and the other doesn't realize that he's been dead the whole time, um, and that's the problem. So let's go through and just kind of work this through and then look at a... Uh, 
a short clip of a ballet, which I don't think I've ever shown in a class before. So, um, Verse 11, um, just bringing this out. And there was a man with two sons. Just sort of sets it up. Some great simplistic of... Uh, uh, great profundity and simplicity. Jesus just comes out, there was a man, once upon a time, there existed a man with two sons. And suddenly the context is given and you're drawn in. Who among us can't sort of kind of climb into that? Um, there was a man, I know men, and there were two sons. I know people who have sons, a daughter, a parent. There was a man with two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Father, commit suicide, die, and, uh, and put your will into effect now. And the father did it. This is what was interesting. I didn't know this until I was kind of thinking about this this week. And he divided his property. The word there is bios. He divided his life, his very life, amongst the two sons, presumably because of the way the story goes out. The older son got the farm and the younger son got the cash or something like that. But the father dies. So right here, as, Capon, as, a, as Robert Capon would say, this parable is a festival of death. <laughs> and here's the first death. Uh, the father commits suicide. Stark word where the, the son says, Dad, kill yourself so I can get your stuff. And the father says, I'll do it. I'll do it. This isn't to emulate. This isn't an Aesop's fable. There's no more. They're setting up at the beginning. This is not a good idea to sort of say, go and do likewise. We're looking at something wholly other. I hope we can get that tension. So then not many days, so the the dad is dead. So not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property with reckless living. We saw the the Rembrandt Um, self-portrait. And when he had spent everything, so there's the son's death. The younger son finally dies. He's now depleted. He has spent everything. He has a zero balance. He's got nothing. He's in a wayward land. He's in a far-off country. He's now burned every bridge. He can't get back. He's got no cash, no credit card, no way to get anywhere. He is destitute, lost, cut off, a deadbeat, as good as dead. Um, uh, And then, to make it worse, a severe famine arose in the country. So you can get deader than dead. And there's the younger son. And he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself. Again, interesting word there. Uh, the word is, is, and he joined himself. So he glued himself upon. A little bit like what marriage is. And the two shall become one. And the two shall glue themselves or join themselves or hire themselves out one to the other. And so he went and he hired himself out to a surrogate father. Since I have no father, since I've commanded my dad to die, I'll join myself to another man. Maybe, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps this longing will get filled. But we'll see. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. He sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing. Um, He wanted to have that, his innermost parts filled. But it wasn't happening. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. No gifts came. The only thing he had was the thing he came into this world with, his sin. All he had left was the only thing that he, uh, that he truly owns, his sin. There was no more giftedness. This is the thunder of grace. Um, but when he came to himself, there's the word of repentance. 
Luke 15, 17. It's the echo of what Paul says. In, uh, make sure I get this one right. In Second in Second Timothy uh, two, where is that word? Um, it's like two twenty five. Um, uh, uh, should have been more prepared. I thought I had written this down. It comes to a place is perhaps you'll be led to repentance, where you will come to your senses and see. Is what Paul says um, as a definition of repentance. This is what I won't go into the history. Um, Repentance as being brought to your senses, having eyes to see and ears to hear, a new heart that feels in the way of God's, from, from, from the work of God's hand, his left hand at work. And when he came to himself, as it were, he looked up and he said, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man walking, and I'm going to walk back as a dead man to my father. Um, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread? Uh, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Um, Make me something other than what I am to you, as if the father could. Make me not a son. Uh, Impute to me, word me, not sonship, but the distant relationship of slave, the distant relationship of employee, the distant relationship as a hired servant. That was his plan. Uh, He came to himself at least halfway uh, in this idea that I know, I'll go back and I'll tell my father, I'm not your son. I don't deserve to be your son. Let me be as something else, but at least I'll be alive. So he's in that sort of in-between place. And now we're going to look at something else. Because then he arose. You know, there's that sort of you know beginning to come out of his death. And there he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced, or fell upon him, and kissed him. Here's the word. You just can't go too far. Because um, we're going to look at uh, the, the ballet from 1929 by someone named George Balanchine. Does anybody know? Okay, some, some ballet folks here. Um, it's not vacuous, but it's not... They, they don't stay close here. Here's Rembrandt. Um, parable of the, uh, the the return of the prodigal son. Famous for every good reason. You got the, um, uh, the father, the son... This is probably the older brother. We're not some woman, um, maybe the mother. We don't know, servants or somebody else, with the great um, portrait of the feet. You know, because we're going to see bring the shoes. I mean, just how how worn and how um, in need he is, and how debased he is uh, in the day. Uh, servants wouldn't have worn shoes. So there's this visual part. Let me be as a servant. He's coming before the Father. I don't even have shoes anymore. I don't deserve shoes. Then the great place of the hands. I'm not going to stay long on this because we've got to move on. But this is one of the great parts that I'd love to sit there and just stare at for a while. Do you all notice the hands, the difference in the hands? We've talked about this before. Look at the Father. This is the Father with his hands on the Son. The Father's left hand, our right, the Father's left. Um, the masculine hand and the hand on the left, his right, the feminine hand, the embrace of the father, which holds both. And even the tension, I mean, I can see Rembrandt, you know, I'm not, I don't know what I'm talking about, but the, the mastery of, of just the strength that's in his hand, even the placement of the thumb, 
which is right in the exact right place to say mine. Secure, safe, home. I've got you. Not going anywhere. But then the, the relaxed, you can see the strength, even the muscles, but the, the relaxed, nurturing, um, comforting, there, there. There, there. Sweet child, it's okay. Not pressing, not hold, just holding. The feminine masculine, as it's often been called. Rembrandt's great work contrasted to this ballet where there's the sense of the father who arose um, and while he was still a long way off, the father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him. Couldn't wait to see the son. Um, uh, this ballet, 1929, George Balanchine with uh, the music by Prokiev, a little bit of different different way where the son, having come to his senses, I'm a dead man walking, uh, I know, I'll go to my father and I'll have this little speech prepared. I have sinned before God and before you. Treat me as your hired hand. And the father in the ballet has a different response than what we see here in Luke 15. The father doesn't run to me. The father waits, lets the son crawl, and then it's still care. The father picks him up, and it's a moving scene, still picks him up and holds the son. But think about the difference in, in what we're hearing um, and seeing in Rembrandt from what's in this little three-minute clip in this, uh, in this ballet. Does anybody know this ballet? Um, the Prodigal Son.
that's how it ends. I can only say, although I'm moved, um, I'm grateful that it's not our Father who doesn't wait for me to grovel and come back to Him and say, I'm, I'll walk away six steps, and if you come to me, I'll receive you. If you do what is in you, if you get on your knees and work your way back to me, I'll receive you into my arms. I'll call you my son again. If you muster up a sufficient amount of sadness and remorse and contrition. And that's why I repeat this so often. It's my one string. This is not our Heavenly Father. It's something like this. I don't know this artist, but guy lives in London. We're almost done. Um, Charlie Maxey. Uh, uh, I wish I'd seen him when I was over there earlier this summer. Um, because he's obviously, I just started Googling around, and he's, he's all over the place with this theme of the prodigal. He's kind of, I think, I think uh, somewhat related to Holy Trinity Brompton, the Alpha Church. Um, uh, I won't read all that, but this is the story of the prodigal son. It should be called The Running Father. Um, and it'd be a picture like this. This is one of his sculptures where the father ran out. I mean, this look at the limpness of the son. I mean, truly spent. There was a famine in the land. And the son had spent all that he had, and he made his way to the father. And the father ran out and did what the son could not do. He lifted him up, and he put him in his arms, and he fell on him, and the son just melted. And so it's just this image of the father, just the father's love for the son, who just says, you're mine. You are mine. You are in my arms, and now you're okay. You're not a servant. Because the last word, no, I'll end here. I used to think, and still a good reading, you know, you can see the son's little prepared speech. Um, I've, I'm wrong. I've sinned against heaven and against you. Um, let me come back into your house and treat me as your, your, uh, your hired hand. And what, uh, he doesn't say that. That was his rehearsed speech. When he shows up with the father, he doesn't have the last word. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's a period. So his prepared speech had, treat me as a hired hand. What he says when he's in front of the father, it just says, you know, uh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I think it can go two ways, and both ways are good readings. Either the father sort of hurries along and says, but the father said to his servants, quickly, the best robe and the ring, the ring is a credit card, by the way, with the ring he could buy things and all that, and put shoes on his feet. That's one reading. The father just won't have anything of it. I say, I know who you are. You will have to finish the story. Or the son came to himself and he realized, you know, this is all I am. <laughs> what I have is a bundle of need. The only thing I truly own is my sin. Um, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, that's right. But I give gifts. Now all that you have is mine, and I took your sin, and the one who was not sin was made to be sin, so that we might become all that the Father is, redeemed, saved, found, alive, joy. And it's the great, the great transition. Um, and I like that. And it's right here in this. Um, I'll stop, because we have to go. Um, we'll finish next week. Lord... Let these words uh, multiply in our ears and let your grace so consume us that we find ourselves lost in you. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.